J. Gresham Machen, born 1881 in Baltimore, Maryland. Father was a leading lawyer, mother was an extraordinary woman, taught Machen the gospel, so by age 12, he could repeat the Westminster Shorter Catechism perfectly, word for word. So impressive parents who were wealthy, well-connected and insured, he got an outstanding education, including John Hopkins University, where he was ranked first in his class. Machen could have done whatever he wanted in life. Money wasn't an issue. Connections weren't an issue. And his intelligence wasn't an issue. But after talking with his pastor, he enrolled at Princeton Theological Seminary in 1902 at the age of 21. What you need to understand is that this was the old Princeton. So he got to study under guys like Aherdus Voss and B.B. Warfield. Unbelievably solid, conservative, Bible-centered institution of higher education. At the end of his second year, the president asked him to stay on after graduation as a professor. But to prepare for that, he spends the summer studying in Germany under Wilhelm Hermann, which is where Machen runs into liberalism for the very first time. Now, he obviously returns to Princeton and teaches there for the next 20 years of his life, but over that time... Liberalism slowly creeps into the seminary, and it slowly creeps into the churches. For example, Harry Emerson Fosdick, famous liberal pastor at First Presbyterian Church in New York, who preached the well-known sermon entitled, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? He says, and I quote, It's interesting to note where fundamentalists, the conservatives, drive in stakes to mark out doctrines around the church. They insist that we all believe in the historicity of certain miracles, including the virgin birth, that we believe in the inspiration of Scripture and the atonement, that the blood of our Lord was shed in a substitutionary death, and that we believe in the second coming of Christ. The question is, has anybody the right to deny the Christian name from those who disagree on such points of doctrine. Now, what does he mean to disagree? Well, he clarifies in his sermon. To disagree means denying the virgin birth. It means rejecting the miracles of Christ, renouncing the authority of Scripture, and refuting the physical resurrection of Jesus. So he asks, should people who reject the core doctrines of the Christian faith be refused the name Christian? J. Gresham Machen, in response, rightly, faithfully, and courageously said, yes. And as a result, was forced to start a new seminary, Westminster Seminary, and a new denomination, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, both founded on the historic gospel and committed to teaching the Bible as the inspired, authoritative, and infallible Word of God. And he started writing books like Christianity and Liberalism, 1923. What is Faith, 1925. The Virgin Birth of Christ, 1930. The Christian Faith in the Modern World, 1936. And the Christian View of Man, 1937. All to defend the Bible and to defend Orthodox Christianity. So he held firm to the trustworthy word as taught and was able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke specifically those who contradict it. Now, I would humbly suggest 
We have the same problem today as Machen had in his day. To no surprise, because there's always been a war for truth. As we'll see this morning from Titus chapter 1. There's always been false teachers declaring false teaching and leading people away from a knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Which means qualified elders are needed in every single age. Who are above reproach, able to teach in a spiritually edifying way with clarity, courage, and conviction so that souls might be saved, the church might be protected, and that God might be glorified. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1 is on page 998 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Also encourage you to grab my outline from the bulletin. Your outline in your Bible is ideal as we walk through Titus chapter 1 verses 1 to 16. Follow along as I read. Titus chapter 1 verses 1 to 16. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and has children, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil breasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and to the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So there's the occasion, the problem, and the solution for all the things that were taking place in Crete, all in 16 verses. But I want you to see how, A, this greeting from a qualified elder is packed with incredible theology and really summarizes the entire book of Titus. 
So let me read verses 1 to 3 again. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So Paul is clearly the author, but he's also an apostle called and commanded by Jesus, Acts chapter 9, to proclaim the good news of the gospel specifically to the Gentiles. Or as Ephesians 3.8 says, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, which obviously includes the Cretans who are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So Paul's a qualified elder on a mission from God, verse 1 says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which is wonderful, great and good. But what exactly does that mean? Well, it means that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, sanctification, and glorification because there's a progression here. Verse 1, Paul says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, that's salvation, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, so putting sin to death and walking in righteousness, that's sanctification, in hope of eternal life, that future hope which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, that's glorification. But that's a work that only God can do in a person's heart, God's elect. People need to cry out, yes, for salvation, repent and believe and put their sin to death and walk in righteousness, but God's the only one who can make them alive, which he does through the faithful preaching of the gospel. That's why Romans 10, 17 says faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ and why Titus 3, 5 says God saves us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal by his Holy Spirit, whom he pours out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So Titus 3.5 is talking about the salvation of God's elect. That God, according to his goodness, his mercy, his loving kindness, saves the people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. How does that happen? Well, verse 1 tells us. Number 2, that sanctification is according to the knowledge of God's truth. Paul says, for the sake of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. So we must be those who know God's word. Having a knowledge of the truth, which is obviously an ongoing process. That's why Paul says in chapter 2, verse 11, that the grace of God trains us. It trains us as God's elect to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So training us through God's word and our ever-growing understanding of who we are as wicked sinners and who he is as the one true God. Titus 3.3. 3. 
That we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So the Bible constantly reminds us of our total depravity. But it also constantly reminds us of God's incredible mercy. That when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, he saved us. So that glorious, never-to-be-forgotten knowledge of the truth regarding our utter sinfulness and God's incredible faithfulness that he saved us is the very knowledge of the truth that motivates us to be a people who are zealous for good works. But just like any knowledge, it's a learned knowledge. That's why Paul says, chapter 3, verse 14, let the people of God learn through the knowledge of the truth, to devote themselves to good works. And what's the end game? Well, again, Paul says in verse 1, it's the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So number three, glorification to God's eternal home, which, by the way, is all over the book of Titus. Chapter 2, verse 13, God's elect are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 7, that being justified by God's grace, we might become heirs, inheriting this heavenly home according to the hope of eternal life. The same promise Jesus made back in John chapter 14, that if we believe in God and we believe also in Christ, then he goes to prepare a place for us, a heavenly home. Home, the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness will one day reign so that where he is, there we may be also experiencing fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That's our blessed hope. Number three, glorification to God's eternal home. So as we transition from A, greeting from a qualified elder, to B, charged to appoint elders, I want you to realize how this greeting highlights so clearly the reality that salvation, true faith in Christ, looks like something. Because Paul says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Now, why do I highlight that? Well, because what Paul discovered in Crete was an island filled with false teachers, chapter 1, verse 16, who profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So what did Paul do? Well, he charged Titus, a qualified elder, to appoint qualified elders. Verse 5, Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete, Titus so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now notice the charge to appoint elders, plural, in every town, singular, which, by the way, was the standard operating procedure for fall. In fact, Acts chapter 14, verse 23 says that after Paul preached the gospel in every city and made disciples, he returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch cities where he had already preached the gospel to strengthen the disciples, encourage their faith, and to appoint elders, plural, in every church, singular. 
So that's the clear pattern of the New Testament. Titus 1.5, to appoint a plurality of elders in every individual church. Now, why would Paul do that? Well, for starters, it's a humble way to approach the whole thing. Because the thinking of a few godly men is better than the thinking of one godly man. So no elder or pastor is gifted to do the work alone. Instead, we all have strengths and weaknesses. So a plurality of elders brings balance, allowing the strength of one to be balanced with the weakness of another. A plurality of elders also spreads out the weight, the responsibilities, and the time needed to faithfully shepherd the flock of God among us. It also provides internal checks and balances so that if one elder suddenly goes bad, the church is still protected by the rest of the elders. And then last but not least, it's because the reality of false teachers, both outside the church and inside the church, which seems to be the case here in Crete. Look at verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate and empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching what they ought not to teach. Now let's just think about that for a second. Because Jesus describes false teachers as people who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In order to steal, kill, and destroy the weak sheep, specifically, spiritually speaking. So according to Jesus, there are shepherds, there are sheep, and there are wolves. And how do we know them? Jesus says you will know them by their fruit, by their lives. So the wolves in Crete are known by their ungodly lives. According to Titus 1.16, they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So Paul is saying there are many wolves roaming around who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers seeking to steal, kill, and destroy whole families. So let me just ask, how many shepherds would you like to protect you from the wolves? Well, I would say as many as possible. I mean, wouldn't you want as many as you could get? Wolves are scary. They're vicious predators. And there are many. But the elders are called the shepherd, the flock of God among them. So in my mind, the more the merrier, as long as they're qualified. Which is exactly where Paul goes next. So number one, need for qualified elders. Now number two, description of qualified elders. If you would follow along as I reread verses six to nine. Paul says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must also hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, right off the bat, notice the repetition of the phrase, 
above reproach. Verse 6, if anyone is above reproach with regard to his wife and children. So A, above reproach in his home. Then again, verse 7, for an overseer or elder must be above reproach in all of these different qualities. So B, above reproach in his character. And then verse 9, being above reproach with regard to the word of God, knowing it, teaching it, and refuting those who contradict it. So see, above reproach in his teaching. In summary, elders must be above reproach, starting in the home. So specifically with regard to his wife and his children. Verse 6 says he is the husband of one wife. Now, does that mean that a divorced man is automatically disqualified? I don't think so. Instead, Paul going after the idea of being a one-woman man. Again, remember the context. Verse 12 says, Cretans are liars, ear of obese, and lazy guttons. So no doubt these men were converted out of secularism and paganism, where men had prostitutes and inappropriate relationships. In fact, one commentator, Gene Getz, says, though it was illegal to have more than one wife, it was certainly not illegal for a married man to have more than one woman in his life. So the qualification is to be a one-woman man, which means you've got one woman on your mind, one woman to love, to protect, and defend, one woman to cherish, adore, delight in, and care for. I also think it means you pass the happy wife test, meaning she's not frustrated under the man's leadership, but instead is thriving and growing, content and joyful. And the same needs to be true of the kids. They need to be well-managed, growing, content, and happy. So they're not out of control, disobedient, or dysfunctional. Now, I know Titus 1.6 says in the ESV, his children are believers. But that's an unhelpful translation because it can also be read as children of faith or faithful children. So here's a great question. How do we make that interpretive decision? Well, for starters, we need to look at the immediate context. So notice how Paul clarifies his words, saying his children are believers, that is, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, which means they're well-managed and they're under control. So they're faithful, well-managed, obedient children. Second, we look at similar passages. So we always want to interpret the cloudy verses in light of clearer verses, easier to interpret verses. Like 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4 which says that an elder manages his household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. So again, faithful children, not children of faith. And third, we look for biblical consistency. So if we make the decision to interpret, Titus 1.6 is saying an elder must have believing children then we're putting this incredible, unbearable, unbiblical responsibility on the father's shoulders to ensure his kid's salvation. Rather than simply raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, teaching them the gospel and trusting that God will save them, Titus 3, 5, and make them alive together with Christ, Ephesians 2, 8. 
So yes, he must manage them well, raise them well, teach them the good news of the gospel, but he cannot make them believers. Only God can do that great work of redemption in their lives. So elders must be above reproach in their homes. They must also be above reproach in their character. I mean, just look at the laundry list that Paul gives us here. Paul rattles off 11 different descriptions, five of them being negative and six of them being positive, starting in verse 7. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Those are all the things he must not be accused of. But then we get six positive things, verse 8, but he must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Now, a thousand things could be said here, but two that I want to point out specifically. First, recognize this list has everything to do with the false teachers. So Paul's essentially saying, right, don't be like those guys. You should be radically different than those guys who, verse 10, are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. They're liars. Verse 11 says they teach for shameful gain, so they're greedy. Verse 12 says they're liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Verse 15, defiled and unbelieving. Verse 16, detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Notice, that's a laundry list as well. On the negative side, talking about the false teachers. So the first thing to realize is a qualified elder must be seen in contrast, evident and obvious, to the false teachers. Second thing to notice is how ordinary the list really is. Elders are not called to be superheroes. So they don't have to be faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, or able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. They're not supermen. Instead, they need to not be arrogant, out of control, or a drunkard who yells at his wife, kicks his dog, and hates old people. I mean, at one level, it's not a very high bar that we're shooting for here, because it's in contrast to the Cretans, who are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So grab a hold of this reality, that everything listed here is also commanded and expected of every single person who delights themselves in Christ, is zealous for good works, and is longing for God's eternal home. So there's nothing extraordinary in this list. But that's the point, isn't it? Elders are called to be examples to the flock of God among them. 1 Peter 5.3 So they should be models of Christianity in their character. So men you want to emulate, men you want to be like, men you want to follow as they follow Christ. So the question is really pretty clear. Are these men worthy to be followed? Are they men that you look up to? Are they godly? Are they above reproach? Are they worthy of emulation? So that's above reproach in the home and above the reproach in their character, which brings us to see above reproach in their teaching, which has everything to do with clarity, courage, and conviction, knowledge of the Bible, ability to teach in a spiritually edifying way, and the willingness 
to confront those who contradict the truth of the scriptures. Look again at verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that, here's the reason, he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it, which means the elder's leadership must be tied to the word of God. He must know the word. He must love the word, and he must live the word, having a growing understanding and knowledge of the truth, verse 1, which accords with godliness. That's what makes him fit to be an elder. So we don't just follow elders because they're appointed to the office of elder. In fact, I don't think elders become elders when we appoint them. So yes, that's when the process is formalized, but they should be leading and loving. Serving and sacrificing, teaching and training as godly men long before they're ever given the title of elder. When they become an elder, we recognize them as elders rather than making them elders. And we follow them because they know the word. They love the word and they minister the word. They should know it extensively, studying it, memorizing and meditating on it. They should know what they believe, and they should know why they believe it. They should understand theological issues and be equipped to answer hard questions. and should be able to identify when someone has gone off the rails with regard to the truth, like these false teachers in Crete, who are, verse 14, devoting themselves to Jewish myths. So things outside the Bible and turning people away from, notice the truth of the scripture. So elders should be highly theological, but they should also be tremendously humble. They should be humble because it's not just knowing the word, it's being able to teach the word in a spiritual edifying way. So effectively communicating with young and old, male and female, with all sorts of different personalities. We're going to see that in chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine to all of these different kinds of people. What a daunting task that is. So it requires humility. And it also requires patience. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Paul says, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So an elder must be able to persuade people, plead with people, comfort people, encourage people, lead people, and instruct people, not according to their own thinking, but according to the word of God. These are non-negotiables for elders, men who are above reproach in their home, in their character, and in their teaching, which gets played out, by the way in real life and in real time, verses 10 to 16. So need for qualified elders, description of qualified elders. Now number three, reason for qualified elders. I'm not going to highlight again all the issues going on with this particular false teachers in Crete. Instead, I want you to grab a hold of what Paul declares in verse 10 and the seriousness of what he is saying there. He says, for there are many, there are many 
who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. So A, the reality of false teachers, but specifically the fact that there are many false teachers. Which means, follow along with me as we walk from verse 10 to verse 16. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. Verse 11, there are many who must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families. Verse 11 again, there are many who teach for shameful gain. Verse 13, many who need to be rebuked sharply. Verse 14, many who turn away from the truth. Verse 15, many who are defiled and unbelieving. And verse 16, many in the church who profess to know God but deny him by their works. I want you to feel the weight of that because it's absolutely terrifying because that's not just false teachers. That's false believers, people in the church who profess to know God, but they deny him by their works with their lives. Oh, I appeal to you this morning to not just assume that you're a Christian just because you came to church on a Sunday or because you're nicer than the guy who's sitting next to you or because you declare yourself to be a Christian. My goodness, there's far more to it than that. If that were the criteria, then I could be a car just by standing in my garage, reading the owner's manual and saying that I'm an automobile. Right? Don't sit here and think that you're a Christian just because you came to church and you declare yourself to be a Christian. True faith in Christ is a person who delights themselves in God, glories in the good news of the gospel, is overwhelmed by God's grace to save a wretch like them and has a growing knowledge of the truth seen most clearly in a transformed life. That's why Paul says, Titus 1.16, there are many, many who profess to know God but deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So if you're not zealous for God or zealous for good works, then I want to appeal to you to plead with God, to be at work in your life, to cry out to him, to open your eyes to see the reality of your hypocrisy so that you might truly repent and truly believe in the Lord Jesus and as a result that you might truly live for his glory, his honor, and his praise. Oh, I plead with you to not look at chapter 1, verse 16, and to think about somebody else. Oh my goodness, that highlights the hypocrisy right there. Do not be afraid to ask yourself, am I a person who professes to know God, but I deny him with my life? Do not be afraid to ask that question. If you're afraid to ask that question, then you're just cruising along saying, man, I'm going to get there. I'm just going to get there. Like, 
The Bible is pleading with you to not close your eyes to that reality, but to consider, am I that kind of person who says one thing with my mouth, but my heart is far from him? I am not trying to convict you. I trust the Spirit will do that. But I am appealing for you to be honest and to look at your own life to see if that be the case. Back to the reality of false teachers. Paul is saying that there are many There are many trying to deceive you, trying to tempt you, trying to move you in the wrong direction, trying to cause you to wander away from the faith and the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. And I just don't think we think like that. We don't think there's many. We think everything is fine, which is why we think that we don't need help. We think that we don't need protecting. We don't think that we need accountability. We think think that we don't need people who are caring for our souls who will one day have to give an account on that great day of reckoning. Oh, please understand and appreciate that pastors and elders are a gift from God, specifically given from God, to you as a people for your own good. Listen to these words from Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says, God gave us apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And as a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by their craftiness and their deceitful scheming. Listen to me when I say false teachers are real. And there are many. Which is why we as a congregation need qualified elders to lead us who are a gift from God for our good. Which brings us to be the response of qualified elders to false teachers. Now, I don't know if you picked up on this or not in verses 9, 11, and 13, but the elders' response to the false teachers is pretty aggressive. It is pretty intense. It includes refuting those who contradict sound doctrine. It includes silencing those who are insubordinate. It includes rebuking those who turn people away from the truth. Titus 2.15 says, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Titus 3.10 says, Warn them, the false teachers, and if necessary, remove them from the congregation incredibly strong language and intense actions. Why? Because false teachers are teaching a false gospel, specifically a false works-based gospel. I get that from verse 10. 
which says they're of the circumcised party. Verse 14 says, devoting themselves to Jewish myths. So they're teaching that which is contrary to the truth of Scripture and putting people's spiritual well-being in danger. So declaring, at first glance, things that appear to be wise. Boy, that's helpful information. And yet, in the end is the way of death and destruction. Proverbs 16, 25. And so often the false teaching appeals to the ability of man in and of himself. That's why I started with Harry Emerson Fosdick. His whole argument was that new knowledge from outside the Bible has come to mankind. New knowledge about the physical universe, its origins, forces, and laws. So new science, new knowledge about human history, and even new knowledge about other religions. And at first glance, all these new ideas seem so very impressive. But the result? They cause people to turn away from the truth of the gospel until they deny the virgin birth, reject the miracles of Christ, renounce the authority of Scripture, and deny the physical death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So false teachers must be silenced. They must be refuted, and they must be rebuked. Titus 1.9, rebuke those who contradict that which accords with sound doctrine and godly living. Now, if you think that I am being harsh, then I just want you to think about Jesus and the Pharisees and how Jesus responded to the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says to the Pharisees, Woe to you! Scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you people who profess to know God but deny him by your works, you travel over land and sea to make a single follower, and when they become a follower, you make them twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. That's pretty intense, don't you think? But be clear, Pharisees were false teachers. They were wolves in sheep's clothing. So Jesus silenced them and Jesus rebukes them. Which I would suggest is the most loving thing that he could possibly do. But it's loving in two different ways, isn't it? For starters, look at verse 11. It says false teachers must be silenced. Must, why must false teachers be silenced? He gives us the reason, since they are upsetting whole families. So it's loving to protect the flock of gung among us. It's loving to make sure people who already know Christ are not being led astray to the point of denying the faith. But there's a second reason why confronting false teachers is the most loving thing that you could possibly do. Look at verse 13. Paul says, therefore rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith. So they must be aggressively confronted. Why? So that they can repent of their wicked ways, believe in Jesus, and come to faith in Christ. So rebuke them sharply for the good of their own soul. Reminds me of 1 Timothy chapter 2. 
where Paul says that the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. Boy, that sounds like Titus chapter 1. Must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him, by the devil, to do the devil's work. Now, do you realize how difficult that is? To be kind and gentle while people are being wicked and hateful? slandering you, ruining your reputation, and as a result, leading people away from the truth of the gospel. That's unbelievably difficult. Speak truth, yet be gentle. Confront and rebuke, and yet show perfect mercy toward all people. How is that possible? I think it's only possible when you realize there's a spiritual battle that is raging for people's souls. So elders must see things from an eternal perspective, remaining calm, kind, and gentle, not hot-tempered or violent, which is radically different than shrinking back in fear. Titus 1.9 says, rebuke those who contradict. Clarity, conviction, courage. And yet 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 says, be patient with them all. That's why I started with J. Gresham Machen. J. Gresham Machen was an incredibly godly man with clarity, courage, and conviction in his defense of the gospel. And yet J. Gresham Machen was unbelievably patient and kind. And he was always desirous that false teachers like Harry Emerson Fosdick would come to his senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Clarity, conviction, courage. And yet be patient with them all. Let me remind you, elders are not superheroes. They're just godly men who are doing the very best they can to be above reproach in their homes, in their character, and in their teaching, who are able to lead, serve as examples, and are willing to watch over others, people's souls. Most obvious application is we must keep looking for these kind of men to lead this church to plant churches, and to pastor other churches as we move forward as a congregation. But in addition, these qualities are what every single one of us should be striving for, aspiring to as men, women, and children. Every single one of us should be striving to be above reproach in our homes. Faithfully loving our spouses and our children, or if you're a child, then faithfully respecting and honoring your parents. And above reproach in our character, 
So growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, self-controlled and sober-minded, seeing the fruit of the Spirit increasing in our own lives. And above reproach in declaring the truth of the gospel to other people. So learning the word, loving the word, living out the word, and ministering the word. Memorizing and meditating on it so there's a growing clarity, a deeper conviction, and an abounding courage to live it out. Speaking truth, instructing in sound doctrine, and being willing to refute and to rebuke those who contradict it. May God give us the grace to identify godly elders, but also to be godly ourselves. People who renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and are living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has promised that he is coming back. So that where he is, there we may be also. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, I plead with you to be doing a good work. Such a good word this morning. Such a hard word in so many ways. Lord, I pray that you would be at work. That we would be those who are willing to look at our own lives Lord, I pray that we would have the courage to do so. And Lord, I pray that we would be people who are zealous for God, that we would glory in the good news of the gospel, the reality that we've been forgiven of our sin, that God was so gracious, so kind, so loving to save a wretch like me, that we never get over the gospel. And we long with hearts that are so often broken because we're zealous for good works, because we want your name to be glorified and honored among us. Lord, if there are any here this morning who don't yet know you, I pray that you would be gracious and kind, that you would enable them to see the reality of their sin and their desperate need for the Lord Jesus Christ. Do the work that only you can do, Lord. We give all these things to you. Pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.